I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now. Thank you so much for listening. Click on the link in this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topics or podcasts. Today on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about vaccine hesitancy. During COVID, one of the concerns was, wow, these vaccines got to market fast. Dr. Candy, you just said 20 years for pneumococcus, and COVID was like a year and a half. First of all, COVID was our generation, COVID vaccine was our generation's moon landing. Joining me here in the podcast studio is Dr. J.B. Canty. He's an associate professor of pediatrics at UT Health San Antonio and University Hospital. He's also one of the few in the country who is double boarded in neonatology and infectious disease. He's a contributing writer for Red Book. Dr. Canty also has a master's in public health. Dr. Canty, it's such an honor. Thank you for being here today. I, I spent a lot of time with community pediatricians, and one pediatrician was saying, you know, there's so many new vaccines, and I only have so much time with a patient. What do you say, and, and how do we, we know how important these vaccines are, but it's, it's so frustrating. I, I agree, and, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll spin this as saying I don't have an office practice, but we see this even in the neonatal ICU setting where these babies are two months old or they're four months old, it's time for their vaccines, and it can sometimes be a challenge. Um, there are three kind of boxes we can put families in. Uh, there's there's a group of families that are, that are going to say yes. Um, those are, you know, obviously easy. There's a group of families that we call vaccine hesitant, meaning they're willing to say yes, but they have questions or they have concerns and they need time with you to go over those questions and concerns. And then we have vaccine refusers and those are hard no's and they're hard no's no matter how much information you give them. Obviously, as, as, as providers, we want to spend time with the vaccine-hesitant families. We want to get them to be a comfortable yes. We want them to feel comfortable with the decision they're making. But we have two problems. <laughs> One is we don't always know who's a vaccine-hesitant parent and who's a vaccine refuser. And if you spend time that you may or may not have talking to a vaccine refuser only to find out at the end that they're someone who's going to refuse no matter what. They're not hesitant. They've already made up their mind, but you wish you'd known that an hour ago. That can be frustrating because we, we, you know, we have a limited amount of time to take care of as many kids as we can. The other problem is even if they are vaccine hesitant and they, they explicitly say, doc, you know, I, I want to get to yes. I'm just really anxious about X, Y, and Z. The busy office provider may not have that time, you know, and you may say, okay, well, come back and see me on Friday. We're going to have 30 minutes, just be you and me and, and your child, and we're going to sit and talk about this. And at the end of 30 minutes, they say, mm, I just, I have a few more questions. Like, oh, okay, well, I'll see you next week. And all of a sudden, your office, your, your, your template is getting filled up by, by trying to convince these families. And a lot of providers, as desperate as they might be to get that family to yes, they may decide this is not a good investment of my time or my office staff's resources. And so that that family remains a no just because we couldn't give them enough time. And we'll have in pediatrics now, we're having some, we're producing special shorter segments and the pediatric practitioner who's listening could refer them to pediatrics now for parents and they could get that wherever they get their podcasts and listen to you explaining directly to the parent. So I'll explain more about that um, in a bit. So I, I mean, I know um, among some of my friends who are, you know, pretty highly educated, super nice people. And I'm surprised when, you know, they'll say things like, well, I wouldn't put that into my child's body or I wouldn't get, you know, I don't want like a COVID vaccine that going into my body, injecting that. It's just, 
Where I was like, I can't believe you wouldn't do that. You know, what do you what do you say about that? It's yeah, it, it it's really frustrating, and there's a lot of different arguments that people make. I, I I will say up front that I have yet to run across the parent who is saying, you know what, Doc, I'm actually a terrible parent, and I want my child to come to harm. Like I want nothing more than my child to die horribly. Like that 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 doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Everyone is operating even if they're maybe misguided or intentionally ignorant of the facts, it doesn't change the fact that they want what's best for their kid. And and, and in, in their mind, based on the facts that they're aware of, what's best for their child is vaccine avoidance. And so getting them from here's the actual, you know, here's the actual numbers, here's the actual facts, and trying to get them to a place where they go, oh, what's best for my kid is the vaccines, is sometimes doable, is always time consuming. But, 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 I have never thought that, oh, this person, I may have grumbled and I may have been grouched about them out of earshot, but I've never thought, oh, this family hates their child. Like they want to do what's best for their child. That's a great point. That being said, <laughs> um, so one thing I get a lot of is, oh, I don't want to overwhelm their immune system, right? I hear that one sometimes like, oh, he gets six shots at the four month visit. That's a lot for his little body. The immune system is amazingly capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. Um, <laughs> if you are a four-month-old child or if you're a nine-month-old child who's started to crawl and you're crawling around the house and getting into stuff and you go outside, you're probably exposed to hundreds or thousands of different antigens, meaning different immune stimulatory proteins, right? Pet dander, the piece of bacon that fell off the counter, Uh, a piece of gum (laughs) that someone left on the underside of a chair and you're touching and exploring and your immune system is processing a million things without hyperbole. Your immune system is processing hundreds of thousands of things a day. Mm. It can handle six more things, right? It is, it is a, a, a very small addition to what you're doing anyway. The other thing is that the, the antigenic weight, meaning the amount of protein that's being injected in these vaccines is really, really small. And it's, it's, it's strikingly small when you do it to scale. The old smallpox vaccine that those of us of a certain age, uh, our parents may have gotten, or some of us may have gotten, depending on how old we are listening to the podcast, that smallpox vaccine by itself is four times bigger than all of the vaccines you get from birth to age 18 combined, right? And the smallpox vaccine itself was a very safe and effective vaccine. And so this concept that, oh, it's too much for the immune system, if you spend an hour in Chuck E. Cheese, or sorry, not to throw Chuck E. Cheese under the bus, but if you spend an hour in a public place with high touch areas, you're going to be exposed to way more antigens than the vaccines are. The second thing is that the amount of science that goes behind these vaccines, the amount of hoops that the companies have to jump through to make sure these vaccines are safe and effective, the amount of regulations that the FDA has in place where they have to prove safety and efficacy before these things can ever come to market is really, really high. A vaccine, uh, PCV20, is launching right now, depending on when this podcast airs, the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine with 20 different serotypes. So PCV7 came out in 1999, PCV13 came out in 2010, and now we have 15, and now we have 20. It's taken two decades to get here. Um, it, It has been well studied. We know it's safe. We know it's effective. And even then, once the vaccines go to market, there's the vaccine adverse event reporting system. There's VAERS. So once these vaccines go to market, we can still continue to report on them. And every once in a blue moon, as with the first rotavirus vaccine, maybe we learn something that we didn't know ahead of time and they'll immediately address it. So these vaccines 
much more so than products you can buy at the counter of a gas station, much more so than supplements you can buy at HEB or Walgreens have been tested and have been shown to be safe because the, the rigor of vaccine production is sky high within the, within the federal government, as, as it should be. The third one and final one is if you don't vaccinate your child, those components are going to get into them naturally, right? If you don't vaccinate your child against whooping cough, your child's going to get whooping cough and they're not going to get the acellular pertussis vaccine, which is a teeny tiny little fraction of the bacteria. They're going to get the whole bacteria and they're going to be sick for months and months and months and months. So for the commonly for the common vaccines the, for things that we see all the time things like pneumococcus chickenpox measles whooping uh, whooping cough tetanus you can get the vaccine version or you can get the full blown version but you're going to get it one way or another so i would rather have the safe studied small immunogenic version than the illness version that's just me. That's a great point. The, the development of the COVID vaccine didn't skip any of the safety or regulatory steps. So the phase one trials to try to make sure they had a product that would work in human cells. The phase two trials to make sure they had the dose right. The phase three trials to make sure that it was effective. And now the post-marketing surveillance after it's got, those all still happened. They didn't skip any steps. What they did was they cut out all the downtime between the steps. So as soon as they had a phase one, they went to phase two. There wasn't a five-year period where it sat on the shelf at Pfizer because Pfizer had other priorities. The red tape was The cut. red tape was all pushed out of the way. And, 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 huh. and the federal government, the FDA, the U.S. scientific community, European and Asian scientific communities – made this their priority and they turned all their focus to this to this literally world-threatening problem. And so all the studies happened in a very compressed time frame, not because they compromised on the studies, but because they eliminated all the noise and all the interference and all the downtime that normally separates those steps. And so they were able to get a safe, effective product to market in 18 months. And it was and it was heroic and it probably saved millions, I mean literally millions of lives. And for the parents, you know you're your child is being injected with something that's probably going to make them feel bad. So maybe that's hard for people. It very much is. And I I, <laughs> I had personal experience just recently. I, I got my first COVID boosters. And, you know, it's it's a mRNA vaccine, meaning you're injecting the, the, the blueprint for the virus into cells. They're making some copies of the of the viral proteins. So not the not the whole complete fully formed virus itself. But if if you inject the blueprints of a house and your cells produce the formal dining room and, you know, the eaves and you're like, ah, close enough. I recognize that house. <laughs> this is what it was doing. But but that COVID um, those COVID proteins are fairly inflammatory. And so even with only the partial virus being built, people would feel sick. And I, I dodged that bullet with my first two. I was really happy about that. I just got my updated booster a few weeks ago and it, it threw me for a loop for a day or so. But I was really happy about it because that that fatigue I had, kind of the arm soreness, that's my immune system responding. I'm like, okay, my immune system's ready. I know I'm protected. Did you get the flu and COVID? I got them both at the same, same time, time, yeah, which was which was great, but it, it definitely cost a day of a day of sitting on the couch. And it's a good sign though that it's a good it's sign. It's a good sign. I appreciate it. Um and the and 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 in terms of safety, one of the other things is we approve. We I didn't do it. The FDA approved the vaccine for non-pregnant adults first. 
and we let those that healthy population. We knew it was safe. We knew it was going to be effective. They still approved it for non-pregnant adults first, just to make sure. And once the reports were coming in that it was dramatically decreasing mortality, it was dramatically decreasing ICU admission, then they opened it up to older children. And then they opened it up to younger children and pregnant women. And ultimately, they took it all the way down to six months. So even when we knew it was safe and effective, they're still trying to shield our most vulnerable part of our population. And that's always been a struggle because pregnant women can be some of the most severely affected from flu or from COVID. Young children had some of the higher mortality rates from COVID. And so we're like, oh, those are kind of the people who need the vaccine the most, but we've got to make sure it's safe. The, the, the FDA is always going to err on the side of safety rather than rushing anything to market. That's great to know. Do you want to say anything about the the Nercivimab the, for RSV? So we, we, we actually, um, we just gave our first dose of Nercevimab, uh, which is the trade name is Bayfortis uh, at University Hospital today. I was very excited about that. Nercevimab is a long-acting monoclonal antibody that protects against respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. RSV is a really tough virus that um, everyone who takes care of children has dealt with many, many, many times in their career. And so to be here in 2023 and to have a vaccine against RSV that pregnant women are going to be able to get that's going to protect their newborns, to have the passive immunization of the antibody that all children are going to be eligible for, this might be 2023, 2024, this might be the last RSV season or the last full-blown RSV season. Wow. And if you go back in time, (laughs) it's going to be fantastic. (laughs) If you go back in time to me and my intern year in Baltimore, Maryland in 2006, and you say, uh, Dr. Canty, in, in 17, 18 years, you're not going to have rotavirus because there's going to be a vaccine. And you're not going to have RSV because you're going to have a vaccine. I'm going to say, really? That's awesome. What in the world do the pediatricians do in the spring? It's wonderful. And I'm really excited about it. I also think it's going to be a lot easier on families because our high-risk patients that currently are getting a medicine called Synergist to protect against RSV, it has to be injected once a month. And so they'll, they have to come to clinic October, November, December, January, February, right, five doses, sometimes longer, depending on the season. And now to have a medicine that's going to go in once, and that's going to be it, and it's going to protect them all the way through the wintertime is going to be much more convenient for families. So I'm really excited about, about the dawning of the Nercevimab age. That's awesome. What would you like to say in conclusion to the pediatric to the clinician? I think, I think what I would say to providers is, and, and wholly cognizant of the fact that I do not have an office practice, so I, I definitely don't want to sound like I'm preaching because people who are in the office setting, who are in the front lines, know better than I do. But I would just say from an infectious disease standpoint that every little bit helps. So... I know it's frustrating. I know there's a lot of families that you can't convince or you don't have time to convince. But if you finish the week and you got one family from a no to a yes, you've done you've done great work because every single dose of vaccine into children is going to improve that child's health. And it's also going to raise the herd immunity, raise the level of protection in the city and the state. And that's going to help protect other children who maybe can't get the vaccine or whose parents won't let them get the vaccine. So, um I know it's frustrating. It's frustrating for me too, but every little bit helps. Fighting the good fight. Trying (laughs) is huge. And then for families, what I I would say, two things. One of which is that vaccines work through a concept called herd immunity. So 
if enough people around you are immunized, even if you're not, you can be protected. We do this with babies all the time. Babies can't get the whooping cough vaccine until they're two months old, but whooping cough can be fatal to a two-week-old or a four-week-old. And so what we try very hard to do is vac vaccinate everyone around you, mom, dad, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles or grandparents who want to come visit, right? Access to your newborn is a privilege and not a right. So the more whooping cough vaccines we can give all around that baby, the more protected that baby will be. And that's true at the population level too. So if we can get 90 or 95% of elementary school children immunized against measles, measles won't spread through that school, even if there are five or 6% of children who are unimmunized. And the, the level that you need to be at to protect your community is called the herd immunity threshold. The herd immunity threshold depends on how infectious that virus is. And so without getting too much into the math, the more infectious the virus or the bacteria, the higher the level needs to be. Our herd immunity in Texas has gone from a green light to a yellow light to a flickering red light for several for several different pathogens. Mm. Most of one the one of the most important which is is measles. Measles is very very contagious. One person can probably infect 14 or 15 other people if they're not immunized. So it's very contagious virus. And that means we need to keep our vaccine rates in the 92, 93, 94% range. We're below that in a lot of places. And, mm. and people forget because COVID came around. But before COVID, we were all worried about measles. We had measles transmission in Texas, and, and the rates have not gotten any better. We should be worried about measles. We should be worried about measles. Mm. Measles, can, measles can kill children. Uh, can, it can attack the brains. It can attack the lungs. Mumps, we're getting close to. Even rubella, German measles, which we pretty much eliminated in the year 2000 in, in North America. We're close to being at the level of some places in, in Texas where rubella is going to come back. And people mm -hmm. haven't seen rubella. No pediatrician currently practicing has seen rubella in 25 years. Mm -hmm. So it is okay if your child can't get the vaccine. And it's even okay if you really don't want your child to get the vaccine because of religious reasons or because of deeply held political beliefs. And obviously, we're going to try to do everything we can to convince you. But it is okay if some children don't get the vaccine, as long as enough other children do. But what that does is if your child's one of the one who's not getting them, you're a burden on your neighbors, right? You are a, what we call a freeloader. You are relying on your neighbors and your classmates at school to go get their vaccines so that you don't have to. That's not the kind of person that I want to be. That's not who I want my kids to be. But as long as enough of us are vaccinated, we're okay. But just know that that you're not helping and you probably could be helping. So if you have time to talk to your, to your, to your pediatrician or your family medicine doc, if you have time to do research for um, about the vaccines at, at reputable validated sites like the center for disease control or the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, not, you know, the dark corners of the internet where the information may not be good, but, but it's sites that have been vetted and are, and are, and are, are telling the truth scientifically I would encourage you guys to learn as much as you can about it. I know most of the people listening to this podcast are probably not in that group. And for those of you who have gotten your kids vaccinated, we really, really appreciate it. You are helping your neighbors, whether you know it or not. Um, but I think that education is critical for the people who are maybes to become yeses and for some small fraction of the people who are noes to become maybes. And mm -hmm. if I'm not getting, if my child isn't being vaccinated 
we could actually be hurting our neighbor's kids. Absolutely. Yeah, no, if, and, 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 you know, if your neighbor's kid can't get vaccinated either because they're currently undergoing chemotherapy or maybe they needed a kidney transplant, you're not helping, right? And you could be. And I think most people want what's best for their kids. Most people want what's best for their neighbor's kids. Most people want to help. So vac- vaccination, vaccination is the single most important public health advancement in the history of the world. The reason we don't have to worry about polio these days, the reason we don't have to worry about measles or chickenpox tearing through our communities is because so many of us are vaccinated. But that's not a guarantee. We can slip back into a, a, a bygone time if our vaccine rates drop low enough. I, and I had a friend say that... Um her son is a teenager and he has a tick and she says, I wonder if it was the COVID vaccine, but like, what do you say to that? Yeah. Or is there it's in, 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 um, in, in logic and philosophy, it's called ad hoc ergo propter hoc after therefore because of uh-huh. and it's horrible with vaccines because they get their vaccines and the next bad thing that happens to them, they're like, Oh, well they just got their vaccines. We know that that would have happened anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there are, there are certain, there are, especially with Tdap, DTAP, the diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, there are sometimes neurologic reactions to that one. So I don't want to be totally dismissive, but mm-hmm. 99 times out of 100, it wasn't the vaccines. Okay. Or like the myocarditis with COVID vaccines. You can get myocarditis with COVID vaccines, but you're 100 times more likely to get myocarditis with COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, if you're, if you're that kind of person, you're going to get it either way. Mm-hmm. And it's better to have the milder version with the vaccine than it is the severe version. But it's hard to prove that because if you got the COVID vaccine, you never went on to get the really severe version from wild type COVID. (laughs) Right. Well, I think it's so incredible that you're devoting your career, your life to helping these babies who had no choice but to be born with terrible diseases. I I think if you, if you, if you pin down pediatricians and you ask them why they do it, I think most people will eventually get to some version of it's not the child's fault. You know, kids are pretty blameless. Um, as someone who has uh, three, you know, pre-teenagers, they're not always blameless, but generally, <laughs> generally speaking, they're... I know what you mean. <laughs> and and, and newborn, newborns are the extreme version of that. Like, literally all they did was get born. So uh, to, to, to have a chance to intervene on that patient population and keep families together, prevent transfers, improve outcomes is, is, is pretty meaningful. So I'm, I'm happy that I get a chance to do it. Dr. J.B. Canty with the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and University Hospital... Thank you for being here on Pediatrics Now. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Pediatrics Now. I'm Holly Wayment. Click on the link at the end of this podcast for free credit. I'll see you next time. I'm excited to tell you about a new program here on Pediatrics Now. We are producing short segments, 10 minutes or less, designed for parents. You know, when you don't have time in that office setting to talk about something like vaccine hesitancy or antibiotic use or RSV, our experts who are on this show will also have segments where they're talking directly to parents. So you could let your patients know, go to Pediatrics Now podcast for parents anywhere where you get your podcasts. You can find Pediatrics Now And within that, the shorter segments called Pediatrics Now for Parents. And I hope that this will be an added resource for your patients.